Hey there, everybody. I'm Ian Shapiro, and you're listening to Politics Explained. The latest from Trump's Twitter feed states the United Nations Security Council just voted 15 to 0 to sanction North Korea. China and Russia voted with us. Very big financial impact. Now, the Donald Trump administration as a whole can take this as a victory. However, Donald Trump himself should be careful. Most likely, it was U.S. Ambassador Nikki Haley who had to do some, well, some political gymnastics as uh, individuals from Russia and China are probably not too happy with Donald Trump himself right now as he has with Russia, uh, you know, gone on record now codifying sanctions uh, with them. And for China, he's been blaming them for not doing enough on North Korea, which if I was a foreign leader would probably rub me the wrong way. So you're probably asking yourself, what are these sanctions on North Korea exactly? Well, the sanctions that were passed by the United Nations Security Council say that they're going to try to ban countries from buying North Korean goods, specifically things like coal, iron, iron ore, lead, lead ore, and seafood, uh, among other goods. Beyond just trade, countries are going to be barred from increasing the total number of work authorizations in the country, and also banned from creating new joint ventures with North Korean businesses or individuals in the state. Why is the United Nations doing this, you may ask? Well, this is all in response to North Korea testing two intercontinental ballistic missiles earlier this summer in July. Ballistics experts say that these particular missiles have the potential to reach the United States mainland with a few more tweaks. One further wrinkle in the story, why has China been such a big uh, player in this whole North Korea deal? Well, their agreement to this resolution was important because China is North Korea's largest trading partner and currently makes up about 85% of North Korea's total trade industry. That's a big number, especially when it's out of 100. For more on trade proportions and also how the United Nations is apparently relevant again, you're listening to Politics Explained. I'm Ian Shapiro. Trump is headed away from the White House uh, over the last few days, and uh, it looks like he's going to be out of Washington, D.C. for approximately 17 days on a working vacation. And let me tell you this. I've seen a lot of individuals on, you know, I, I, I keep left-wing and right-wing media in my social feed, you know, for various reasons for this show and also just for my own, you know, critical thinking development as a human being. Uh, you know, you want to see all sides of a story before you really, uh, you know, you really talk about it with other people. And I will say this. People on the left are trying to tear Trump apart. They're trying to make comparisons saying like, well, Trump gave Obama a really hard time about all of his vacation days and Trump is taking even more vacation days and his travel expenses are set to be a ton more than Obama's over eight years and then over just one year for Trump. And like, okay, okay. Those are all like cute, valid comparison points. But you know what? You know what? Read a non-biased source and you'll realize that the prime reason for Trump taking the 17-day working vacation is because the air conditioning isn't working at the White House and it needs to be revamped. The whole system needs to be gutted and put back into place. Have you ever worked in Washington, D.C.? I have. And if you have also, then you know that it's a giant moist swamp. Nobody can get any work done in those conditions. It's just super uncomfortable and we're all humans, right? 
Now, some of you may be saying, like, good, I don't want Trump to get anything done. Good. It's like, yeah, but also their family is in there. Baron Trump's a baller. If you ever saw his Twitter feed before uh, he erased it, all he did was talk about, like, BuzzFeed quizzes, fidget spinners, and, like, anime fan fiction. That kid had the coolest Twitter of all time, and I know I'm going off on a bit of a rant, but I guess I'm just saying, as one human to another human, nobody wants to be hot and moist and trying to, you know, be trapped in their work environment like that. I I work, you know, 70% of the time from my apartment because I don't want to go outside in the heat and ride my bike to, uh, you know, my campus office. That's just something about me. I can get a lot more done at home if I'm not, like, feeling disgusting, and I think that we can all agree with that at some point. So if you're angry at Trump, that's cool. If you don't want him to get any work done, that's cool too. But just remember, like, nobody likes being hot, sticky, and moist in August. It's just not fun. Hey, so for more about the human side of political controversies, you're listening to Politics Explained. I'm Ian Shapiro. Have you ever told your best friend about a movie that you want them to see because you really love that movie and then about a week later they come to you and tell you that that was the worst movie they'd ever seen in their life? Well, did you know that for some movies, there's actually political science theory to go along with whether you liked it and they hated it. Al Gore's new sequel to An Inconvenient Truth, called An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power, is releasing this week. And according to 1,292 IMDb users, it is one of the most polarizing films of all time. When you look at the, the 10 out of 10 ratings, you have 40% of individuals giving it a 10 out of 10. You have 42% of these 1,200 plus individuals giving it a 1 out of 10. That is the lowest score that you can give. And in the middle, you've got a bunch of single digit percentages all going up from two ratings to nine ratings. You either love this movie or you hate this movie. And I bet you dollars to donuts that whether you like or hate this movie has a lot to do with your politics on climate change. Or maybe the cinematography is just crap. <laughs> Who knows? For more on cinematography and politics, you're listening to Politics Explained. I'm Ian Shapiro. Hey Ian, do you have any thoughts about the uh, Congress testimony by Adam Carolla and Ben Shapiro on free speech? I saw some of the uh, video footage yesterday and I'm going to talk about it on my own Anchor channel, but I figured I would ask you what you thought of this whole free speech hearing in Washington and if you had any thoughts of your own. Thanks. Yeah, I actually do have a few thoughts on this. So so for some background information for everyone else, uh, conservative columnist and podcaster uh, Ben Shapiro, I have no relation to him. I am Ian Shapiro, you know, so we have 
three-letter names, yada, yada, yada. Um, yeah, so essentially what they're doing is they're going to Congress and they're testifying saying that uh, free speech rights are being dampened on college campuses. Um, and there's a few things that I like and dislike about the way that they're going about these meetings. Number one, uh, they're drawing into a larger narrative of basically academic institutions being areas where free speech is squelched, when honestly it's the opposite that is true. It is at these institutions where people come from all lots of life and they experience and interact with people who are highly diverse, right? Obviously you have some bias because individuals who are younger do tend to be more liberal in the United States, um, and so you may see more vocalization of protesting when individuals view the free speech of others as hate speech. Uh, I would actually recommend anyone going to... Uh, PBS used to have a series called Intelligence Squared Debates, and they actually had a specific debate on free speech, right? And I think the specific, specific prompt was, should freedom of speech include the right to offend, right? So should you be able to offend others? And they start talking a little bit about hate speech uh, and why in some contexts hate speech can be very important. Specifically, uh, say you are a marginalized group in an authoritarian uh, authoritarian government kind of situation, you want to be able to say very bad things about the people that are running government, right? Because they're doing very bad things to the people uh, of that citizenry. But for the most part, I, I would say Ben Shapiro has some flawed arguments in the fact that he says that uh, institutions and universities are breeding grounds of intolerance when all the social scientific research suggests that exposure to different points of view on college campuses is a way that individuals build tolerance and understanding and can actually hear the other political side, the other cultural side, the other racial side, right? You see how other people live their lives and you begin to understand that they're not actually fundamentally different from you. Um, that said, I do sympathize with this idea that the institutions themselves are kind of, in some cases, buckling under the pressure of their students. And this is another issue that I have sometimes with higher education, is this idea of students as customers and that you need to, you know, do everything that they say, right? There needs to be a conversation between students and administrations, not essentially, not, not, not like a, hey, we don't like this, we don't want this on our campus, so we're going to protest and then the university immediately saying, you're right, kick them out of there, right? I think this needs to be a conversation that's going on in universities between students and the administrations. I worked in student government for a long time, and if there's one thing I can tell you is that there's really nothing better than good, constant, ongoing discussions about issues on campuses between uh, student governance leaders and the administration, because they will listen. These individuals came into administrative positions on college campuses because they want students to learn, they want them to feel like they have a safe learning environment, etc., etc. Uh, so this obviously is a great call-in. It's a wonderful discussion that needs to be heard and had by many other individuals out there. Um, but I don't think that we have the time necessarily right now. But you know, as these discussions go forward, let's keep talking about them here on Politics Explained. Thanks for the call-in. I'm Ian Shapiro.